Good morning. So, as planned, we return to our series on the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah tells us about the Israelites, God's chosen people, about 400 and something years before Christ. And that's actually about the last we hear of them in the Old Testament. The Old Testament were arranged chronologically, then Nehemiah would be at the end, along with Malachi, probably. But it's in the history section, which is the way the Bible's arranged. So Nehemiah is one of the history books of the Bible. History then, who did what, when, where, sometimes why. I did history at school. British history up to the Tudors and the Stuarts. They taught me well. I've always been proud that I can recall the names Perkin Warbeck and Lambert Simnel. <laughs> See, I know the name, didn't need to read it. They were, of course, you'll all know, pretenders to the Yorkist throne after the princes disappeared in the tower. There, I know the names, I've got the knowledge. But good education though it was, I'm afraid I've never found any actual benefit in knowing the names of those <laughs> Hasn't even come up in a quiz game. <laughs> now the history in the Old Testament is history, but it can't be like that. It can't just be facts of no value. There's got to be a deeper meaning. There's got to be some relevance to our lives now. So we'll look at today's topic as history, but we'll also see what it means for us now. Now it seems so long ago that we started the series, so a bit of recap is appropriate. And indeed the context is essential to understand today's chapter. So here's the backstory. The Israelites' golden age was long past. Their country had been conquered by first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, the Nebuchadnezzar. They had been taken off in captivity to Babylonia. They were there an underclass. It was a mixed race, pagan society. Their Jewish religion was very much a minority religion, a minority belief. But they were free to live and marry. They integrated. They were there in Babylonia for 50, 70 years. That's two or three generations. The Persian Empire then took over, King Cyrus, king of the Medes and the Persians. Their new masters, then allowed many of the Israelites to go back to their homeland in stages, uh, back to Jerusalem. But of course, back home, they were still part of an occupying empire. They were in their country, but they weren't masters of it. Uh, and indeed, it was very much a pagan, multiracial society. Now, the faithful leaders first got the returned Israelites to rebuild the temple heard of that from previous chapters. That was the focus of their faith. Then they made the city safe, the walls, the gates, we've heard about that. All practical thinking, for though uh, there was an empire in charge, um, there were still enemies of the empire, so they needed those physical defences. But then they needed to rebuild the people, for many had diluted their faith in those generations when they've been in the multicultural, the idolatrous environment of captivity. So, again, still recapping, their attention was drawn to the law, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, setting out God's commandments for how their lives should be lived. 
And they realized, didn't they, just how wrong they'd gone. And they were full of remorse and confession. And two weeks ago, Ian took us into Nehemiah chapter 9. Uh, Lorraine, if we could have the first slide, thanks. Thank you. So the Israelites reflect that all <coughs> their history, they have experienced God's unfailing goodness. But then their forefathers backslid, as indeed they had, and it didn't then go well for the Israelites. As for God, amazing grace, continual forgiveness, all was a new start. So verses, 30, uh, verses 5 to 35 of chapter 9, um, as indicated first on the slide, um, they are actually worth reading sometimes. It's a potted history of the Israelites, from Abraham through Exodus, from captivity in Egypt to the receipt of the laws, Sinai, and then all the stages of their life in the Promised Land. But practically every verse from 5 to 35 ascribed action to God. It's you that did this. You, God, you, the Lord, did this. And when their forefathers went wrong, didn't obey, rebelled, time after time, God's reaction was always the same. Forgiveness, compassion, patience, mercy, a fresh start. So that prayer is mostly praise to God for his goodness, his amazing grace. But at the end of the praise prayer in Nehemiah 9, we get verses... 36 and 37 in the centre there. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers, so that they could eat its fruit and other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you've placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. Back in Jerusalem, yes, Temple rebuilt, yes, gates, walls, but over many generations the people had gone wrong and looked where it landed them in great distress. So, the start of our topic today, what are they going to do about it? What will be their response? Maybe they could say, oh, it's just all too wrong, it's too difficult, just, okay, we can't do anything. Or maybe they would just be apathetic and say, Let's just see what happens. Let's just drift. But no, they don't. They take action. And that's the last verse of chapter 9, verse 38 there. That's actually a bit of a teaser. It's a bit like the structure of modern day soaps, where you get to the start of the next episode at the end of the first one. So the last verse in chapter 9 uh, is the start of the next bit. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement. That was their response, at their remorse, at going astray, and at their distress. So we're going to look first at who the we were in that statement, and then we're going to look at what the binding agreement was. First the we, then the binding agreement. Could we have a second? So this deals with the we, who the we were that were making the binding agreement. Well, we need 29 verses of chapter 10 to understand that. The first 27 verses, 
set out a roster of 84 names. You're going to do yourself not actually going to read them. But they're there. You want to know? They're there for posterity. Religious leaders, leaders of the people, the great and the good. So it starts with Nehemiah, the governor. Now, Nehemiah, of course, was an Israelite, but he gained favor in the occupying empire, and they allowed him to be a sort of nominal governor of his people to you know, keep them in place in the occupied territory. So it starts with Nehemiah, the governor, uh, then the Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, and then it goes on with all of the rest. Many of the names, incidentally, ending in Aya, like each of those, those names describe some quality of God. Nehemiah means God comes. The Aya relates to the Yah of Yahweh, um, which was their name for God. And then in verses 28 and 29, we see that it's not just going to be action by the leaders. The rest of the people join the commitment. The priests, the Levites, they were the temple helpers, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, all of the Israelites, the men, the women, the sons, the daughters, everyone who was of an age of awareness to join in mentally. So it's the whole lot of them. <coughs> so we move on then to the binding agreement. Thanks to Ryan. So it's a covenant, a most solemn promise, made on pain of punishment if they break it. And the first bit is to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God. And secondly, to obey carefully all the commands, regulations and decrees of the Lord our God. It's all that has been explained to them in chapter 8. It's all of the stuff from the first five books of the Bible. And then in verses 30 to 31, and I've indicated there that in effect, what it says is to preserve distinctive identity, um, you get the specific promises for their multicultural, multi-ethnic time when they were in a pagan, idolatrous environment. These were the ways that they needed to take them to stop diluting their faith, to preserve their distinct identity. So things like, we'll stop intermarrying with pagans. That was right for them at that time. We'll return to respecting the Sabbath. We won't trade with the other people from the empire who have no respect for the Sabbath and do trade on the Sabbath. We won't trade with them. That was the commitment they made. We'll resume our traditions, the seventh year forgiveness of debt and the seventh year sabbatical <coughs> of not working the land. Which meant they didn't work themselves, I guess. You're probably thinking, well, I could do with a seventh year sabbatical myself. These things would have been lost somewhere down the road. <laughs> and then we come to verses 32 through 39. Again, there's a lot of detail there, and I've summarised it. In effect, what they're saying is they're going to make sure there's social, social justice for temple routine. In effect, collective decision to be socially responsible in supporting their faith and operating the temple. So if you look at the details.
themselves, you'll find adult men are to contribute one third of a shekel, that's money, as a symbolic ransom. Uh, it's a temple tax for the running and upkeep of the temple. That's what they're going to do. Then the first fruits, so to speak, of the grain, the flour, the fruit, the wine, the oil, their produce in general, is to be given to the temple. And in total, one-tenth of their produce is going to be used for God's work, the old idea of tithing. And a tenth of the tenth is going to actually be used for operation of the temple itself. There is an awful lot of detail, even down to the extent it's written that they would establish a rota to make sure that everybody lends a hand in gathering the wood for the perpetual altar fire. Not easy to gather wood in that part of the world, incidentally. <laughs> and then the last verse. We will not neglect the house of our God. So in summary then, their decision was to reverse the compromises of the past, reverse the abandonment of their distinctive faith. They were going back to their roots as God's chosen people. Well, the story goes on, of course. What's going to happen next? Will they persevere and finally make the grade for the long term, fulfilling all of these details and basics as well? Well, we've got chapters 11, 12, and 13 to go, so it's a bit watch this space over the coming weeks. So that's the history. So what can we take from it for our lives? <coughs> the next slide. No. <coughs> they look back at the law of Moses and they recognise the value of all of those laws of Moses. <coughs> Some of the detail was just for them, then. Knowing marriage, in the altar fire burning, or the rituals, for example. <coughs> we don't have an altar fire burning now. We don't need to. But supremely, there are the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20. <coughs> we now are reminding ourselves of just those Ten Commandments in the Jadon series, which is being interspersed with uh, the Nehemiah chapters. So those are enduring values. They were values set for the early Israelites a few weeks after they came out of Egypt. They were used for Nehemiah's time. Jesus endorsed them. And they are for us now. <coughs> what a pedigree that is for the moral code which we use today. Then secondly, they looked back in Nehemiah's time and they saw the amazing grace of the Lord their God. His unfailing goodness, even through the repeated sinfulness of the people. But how much more do we now see the amazing grace of God from our vantage point? We see all that they saw, plus we see Jesus, his message for all people, <coughs> not just the chosen people. His sacrifice, which offers us salvation through faith and not through works, which is what they were happy to try and live by the most amazing grace. And then thirdly, I would say, let's reflect that, just, that, that Nehemiah 10 was, just not, was not just inconsequential history. 
was God working out his purpose for our present and our future. God's chosen people did retain the existence of their distinctive identity. And that continuation of Jewishness was important, for from it came Jesus. Matthew 1 starts a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And also Paul, that great builder of the early widespread church. Romans 11 starts, it's Paul speaking. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, said Paul, a descendant of Abraham, the <coughs> Benjamin. And finally then, it's a matter of response. They, in Nehemiah's time, had lapsed their faith in the fallen world around them. Their response, when they recognised the need, was to renew their relationship with God, to be distinctive in that fallen world. Our earlier New Testament reading was many years later when the Christian church was being established. Paul's message, as we heard, was the same. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. So it's the same for us today, each one of us, every day. How do we live our lives? As we reflect on the law, on God's amazing grace, what actually do we do about it? For the Israelites, in Nehemiah's time, it had to be a collective response, and it had to suit their times and their condition. For us now, it's personal, but it still has to reflect our times and our condition. So may we all do as they did, recognise where we've gone wrong, recognise God's amazing grace, acknowledge God's commands, and do better, being distinctive in what is often a non-Christian world. Amen. Thank you so much, Ed. We're going to uh, stand, or no, let's just, let's just remain seated if we could. Um, into your hands I commit again with all I am. And I'm just going to have a quiet moment after we've seen this. It's almost as a prayer as we come to the communion table where we remember Jesus' death and his resurrection on the cross. So let's just remain seated and a few moments of quiet while we prepare for communion. Commit it again. again. 